this Monday was Veterans Day, right? There's always that question about whether it's a holiday. I, I kind of forgot about Veterans Day. Um, I went to the bank, and it was closed. Did anybody else go to the bank on Veterans Day and find out? Yeah, see? Yeah, there's that, that question. So I was reading on the Internet a story, uh, so therefore it must be true, that there was a, um, a certain guy in Boulder, Colorado, uh, who parked his car in a metered area, but the sign said, Sundays and holidays accepted, right? So, in other words, you have to pay money into the meter every day except for Sunday or holidays. So we figured since it was Veterans Day, then he wouldn't put money in. Came back to his car after doing some shopping and got a ticket. If you're like me, the worst times for you are when you've been unjustly treated. And he was upset. And so he goes down to City Hall to ask why. Except City Hall was closed because it was Veterans Day. But the police department was still open. So I went to the police department and talked to the police officer and complained. And the officer told him that Veterans Day wasn't a holiday as far as the parking meters were concerned. And so he said, okay, fine, if that's the way it is, I'll pay what I owe. Where do I go? The police officer said, you can't pay your fine today. It's a holiday. <laughs> and the office closed. So, uh, so, again, I would just be livid. I am the kind of guy, I'm fairly even keeled, except for, well, that's not true. Nothing riles me up as much as being unjustly treated or unjustly accused. It doesn't matter if I was a little kid and it was a teacher in my grade school. It doesn't matter if it was my parents growing up who treated me in a manner that was not fair compared to the rest of the family. It didn't matter if I'm a grown adult in college married, whatever, when you impugn false motives, I get really upset. And I feel like I have a right to get upset because this is totally off the grid. And I've always felt fairly okay about that. I just told people, you know, this is what really bothers me the most. Until I began reading for tonight's sermon. And then I was in a quandary. Because the Lord was taking me to a new level when it came to my attitudes about how I was treated. I hate that. You can read a passage over and over again for years, and it doesn't really speak to you in a way uh, that says, truth is here. And then one day, truth is there, and you've got to deal with it. So we're going to look at that passage tonight. If you have a Bible, you can open to the first letter of Peter, chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18. If not, you will see it up on the... Uh, whoa, can you read that? Good. All right. I'll read it out loud in case you don't have your glasses on. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. 
not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah talking about the coming Messiah. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's do a little um, historical cultural background here, because I think it's important. As an American, you should have an aversion to slavery. As an American, if you read this and you hear Peter saying that you should bear up under unjust treatment from your mean master, it may not sit with you well because you are living 50 years after Martin Luther King and a hundred and some years after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, and you know about how slavery was banned in England before that. This should bother you that he would be telling slaves this kind of thing. It bothered me. But when you go back and do some study, you find out that the ancient world was a lot different than 21st century America. In the ancient world, slavery was very, very common. Slaves occupied all sorts of levels in the socioeconomic ladder. There were slaves who were doctors. There were slaves who were teachers. The kind of, like a university professor would be. There were slaves who went to the fields every day and did farm work. There were household slaves who may take care of the goings-on of a large estate. It was a very, very common thing in the ancient world. And it wasn't based essentially around race. You could be a slave because you couldn't pay your bills. And you sold yourself into slavery. You could be a slave because you were conquered in a war, and you were brought back as as the, the spoils of war. 
you might have been a prince in your own country, but you come to Rome and you become a slave. And depending upon your skills, you would fit in society someplace. So this was kind of status quo for the ancient world. And what Peter is saying here, essentially, is that the establishment of the kingdom of God is more important at the moment than the abolition of slavery. I say at the moment because if you look at the sweep of the New Testament, actually starts in the Old Testament, but if you look at the sweep of how slavery is viewed and talked about in the Scriptures, you see a continual ennobling of the slave to where finally you come to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul is saying things like, in Christ there is no slave or free. That we're all equal. Where he's encouraging his friend Philemon to free his slave who also happens to be a Christian brother. All the way when you get to Revelation and we're all one people with one king. So you have this sweep of slavery. And Peter is not concerned as much about abolishing slavery now as he is about establishing the kingdom of God because he knows that if he gets to the hearts of people, that eventually slavery will become a thing of the past. Like that story of the um, little boy who was bugging his dad to spend some time with him, but his dad was reading a magazine. And... Uh, little five, six-year-old kid, so the dad sees a picture of the earth, you know, from outer space, and he, he rips out the page, and he cuts it up into little pieces and throws it in the ground. He says, here, I'll tell you what, why don't you put this little puzzle together, and when you're done with the puzzle, then we can go play. Well, the kid gets it done in record time. Dad's not even done finishing the article yet. And so he asks this, and he goes, son, how did you... Put that together. You've never seen a globe. You've never seen the earth from outer space. He goes, well, Daddy, it was easy. There was a picture of a man on the back, and when I put his face together, everything fell in place for the other side. And I think Peter is looking at things somewhat like that. If we get the inside figured out, the outside will take care of itself. If he calls for revolt... The kingdom of God is placed on hold until the situation is resolved. And given human nature, the situation is never going to be resolved. In this country, in England, a couple thousand years later almost, it was Christians who led the charge to abolish slavery. If you haven't read the biography of William Wilberforce, there's a new one out called Amazing Grace uh, by Eric Metaxas. It's an amazing story about a man who single-handedly almost and then slowly but surely gathered help, changed the slavery laws in England. There was a movie out uh, a few years ago about it. It was a really, really good movie put up by Walden Media. Um, also, in this country, uh, abolitionists largely were Christians who were calling for the country to stop the practice of slavery. So I think Peter had it right, probably on loan from the Holy Spirit. 
So Peter does hit the big issue of slavery, but he hits it in a very foundational way. But what he's asking here is something that rankles us. He's asking slaves to submit to injustice because God is going to do something in the world through them. And here's the application. I think that Peter is calling us as Christians to submit to injustice when we have to because God is going to do something in the world through us. How much are we willing to take it on the chin for Jesus and his kingdom? This is why it's such a difficult passage for me. If you're a Christian, God has called you to endure injustice without trying to take revenge or to hurt back or to slander or to libel in response. He's not calling us to return evil for evil, but actually to return good for evil. Doing something wonderful for those who have hurt us or let us down. When we do this, we're not saying that injustice doesn't matter. It does matter. It's horrible. We recognize this. We're not saying it doesn't matter. We're saying we're entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. We're saying, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. It is God's to avenge. He will repay. I mean, seriously, if you think about it for a minute, you're going, if the person who treats you unjustly doesn't come to Jesus and have his or her sins wiped out by the blood of him who knew no sin, then that person is going to pay in hell forever because of what was done to you. Those are the two options. So this kind of compliance is not indifference. don't want you to mistake those two. It's a way of saying that the safest way to deal with that is to let God deal with it. I think we need to get back to basics. I mean, you'll go to some churches, unfortunately, or hear some preachers on TV who will tell you that it's not God's will for you to suffer. Yes and no. To me, it sounds like suffering unjustly is part of the Christian job description. What I'd rather have people do, instead of saying, that person talked bad about me, and I'm going to tell the truth about that person. Or, that person stole money from me, and I'm never going to loan money again to him or to her or to anybody else. Or, that person mistreated me, and that person deserves to be brought up before the entire community and shown to be the jerk that he or she really is. 
What I'd rather see is Christians who will not take that advantage, even when they've been wronged, who will not return evil for evil, but good for evil, and who will bless rather than curse. I got to say that um, this kind of stuff doesn't happen naturally. I mean, you can't do this on your own. It is not natural. It's not what you want to do. It's not what I want to do. It's got to be some kind of miracle that happens. We're going to talk about that from Peter's writings today. Let's go back to verses 18 and 19. He says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not to those who are only good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. It sounds like something else I've read. It sounds like a verse that we at Scum like to quote from where we get our name. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. The Apostle Paul says this, To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world, right up to this moment. And that's for everybody, not just for slaves. He's talking about the apostles and all the Christians who are following them. So this isn't just a word for slaves. It's a word for us all. Even in chapter 3, later on, Peter's going to say it's for everybody as well. So where does this miracle come from? How do you get this grace to do what seems to be impossible? It seems to me it's in verse 19. It's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. You've got to allow God to break into your situation or your relationship or you will never, ever be able to do this. You just won't. So, you're in that argument with your spouse. You're feeling unjustly accused. You will retaliate if you do not remain conscious of God, if you do not remember God in a situation, when your coworker does something to make you look bad in the boss's eyes, you will hate that coworker and you will try to make his or her life miserable as well unless you remain conscious of God. In other words, what is God doing here? Why isn't he stepping in and allowing it to be different? Why isn't he just outright changing it in my favor since I'm his child and he's supposed to love me? People who preach gospels in communist countries get thrown into prison and the only way they can stay there and not get bitter against the very people they're trying to bring the gospel to is because they are conscious of God and they end up using the prison sentence as another opportunity to share the gospel with their guards who are abusing them. Read the lives of some of the modern saints. Brother Andrew, Richard Wormbrand, Corey Tenboom, 
I mean, these people are amazing. And the reason that they can do these miraculous things is because they remember God. That is the grace by the avenue by which the grace comes to you. And once you allow God to be there, you're free. So if I had a title for the sermon, it would just be maybe Remember God. Remember God. I think that's the key for the whole sermon right there. Remember God. Remember God. Remember God when you are being unjustly accused or treated. Let's go on to verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? In other words, we're not talking about the times when you mess up and you deserve whatever you got. I just found out something. I won't go into details. I just found out I did something to some friends of mine 15 years ago. And now you're going, what'd you do, Mike? Well, let's, I was at their house, and um, uh, I was snooping around where I shouldn't have been snooping. I'm insanely curious. I didn't really see anything that I recall, but I was in rooms where I shouldn't have been. I didn't know they had cameras. I've wondered for the last 15 years why we're not as close as we used to be. Now I know why. I'm suffering justly for a wrong that I committed. Breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. But I I don't have a leg to stand on. So Peter's not talking about that kind of thing. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That's the part I don't like. To this you were called. Hello, faithful follower of mine, wonderful child, darling daughter, wonderful son. I'm calling you. I'm calling you to be treated like I was treated. And you're going, wait a minute. That's part of the job description of being a Christian, to be unjustly accused, to be said to be one thing when I was another, to be treated unfairly when it's not my fault. And Jesus is going, yeah, just like me. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. Here was a guy who was unjustly accused, more than anybody ever has been unjustly accused in the history of the universe. And he suffered for us, the Scripture says, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. That we should follow in his steps. 
what's going to happen. You've been called. It's going to happen. Your job description as a Christian should read, to be taken advantage of. When people take advantage of you as a Christian, it's part of your job description. That's what we do. They take money from us, they never pay it back. They come to our house, they eat our food, they never invite us over. We shovel their driveways, we rake their leaves, they don't come over and do that to ours. You're doing a great job. You're working every minute of every day you're getting paid for, and you get fired. Why? Because you're one of those pesky Christians. You're one of those intolerant Christians, and we're not going to tolerate that kind of thing around here. It's pretty much what happens. It's happened to me before. Boss didn't like me talking about Jesus on breaks. Two of my coworkers. I wasn't always a pastor. So when this happens, guys, when this kind of mistreatment comes our ways, it's not your fault. I'm going to repeat that. I sound like Goodwill Hunting, Robin Williams. It's not your fault. When you get treated unjustly, it's not your fault. We're tempted to think, well, I must be messing up somewhere, otherwise God wouldn't let this happen. You know, I'm, I'm not the Christian I should be. I don't have my 20-minute quiet time every day, and so God is letting this terrible thing happen in my life because he's just like that. No, it's not your fault when you're unjustly treated. What we're told is, is that Jesus suffered for all of our faults. That he was crucified, that he bled, that he died, that he was buried in the tomb, suffering for our sins. And God is not going to revisit the sins that have already been paid for by his own precious son upon you in that way. Rather, when this happens as followers of Christ, what we're called to do is now it's an opportunity to be more like Jesus. It's not condemnation from God. It's just an attempt on our parts to follow in his steps. Thanksgiving's coming. Christmas is coming. Fraught with family tension. You're going to walk back into situations during those times where people are going to take on roles like they did when you were little, and you're going to feel unjustly accused and unjustly treated just like you did when you were seven. It's not your fault if it's not your fault. Are you getting my drift? Jesus paid for that. God would never denigrate the sacrifice of his son by revisiting on you. Rather, it's going to be an opportunity for you to respond to your mom, to your dad, to your brothers, to your sisters, in a way 
that exemplifies the life of Christ. It's not divine condemnation. It's divine calling. Let's go to verse 22. He, Jesus, committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So this is our calling, not to hurt people back when they hurt us, and not to plan to hurt people back, not to harbor bitterness and resentment, because you're not allowed to follow through on it. It's not a simple rule to keep. It's a grace to be lived. It's a miracle that happens because you keep Jesus in mind. You are conscious of God. I can't tell you how my heart breaks for the marriages that I've seen where one person comes to me and says, I've had it. I'm done. I can't take anymore. It's over. I'm out of here. Usually they don't even tell me that. Usually they just leave. And then when I chase them down, they tell me that. How many more marriages might be saved if we at least tried to do what Peter is saying for a little while? Give it a chance. I mean, I don't live in la-la land. I don't think that every marriage is going to be miraculously saved at the 11.59 p.m. mark. It just isn't. Sometimes the best thing is a divorce. I mean, Jesus gave us divorce for a reason. Moses gave the Jews divorce for a reason. But you know what? This idea of suffering unjustly is so far away from the American consciousness, it's even farther away from the romantic consciousness of every young man and woman I know who's getting married. Because most of them are marrying how you make me feel, as opposed to you. I almost feel like changing the vows, just to be more genuine and authentic. You take this person who makes you feel this way, and only as long as they make you feel this way. I think spouses can hurt each other worse than anybody else. And I think we forget to include Jesus in that conversation, in that situation, probably quicker than we forget a lot of places. Because after all, this is the person who's supposed to make me happy. This person committed to me. And we forget that we're just marrying another fallen sinner just like us. 
Jesse will have more to say about this next week as Peter tackles marriage. But the answer is in verse 23. Jesus trusted God who judges justly. In other words, he refrained from really what would have been an accurate and a, a pro, an appropriate judgment about the people who were nailing to the cross. There's no doubt about it that they were wrong. But Jesus refrained from that and left it up to God who judges justly. I think that's amazing. I am so slow to put this into practice, but I did try it this week in a very difficult conversation I was having with my own lovely spouse. My normal reaction as a hot-tempered Greek man is to raise my volume the more unjustly accused I feel to take on a tone of voice that is imperial, patriarchal, and then if I want to start firing back, you know, I can do a pretty good job because I live with her for as long as she's lived with me and I know all of her stuff like she knows all of my stuff. I can divert attention from me to her in a heartbeat. And so we were having this very difficult conversation. I decided to keep God in mind. Remember Jesus to have a God consciousness during that. And it was weird. I mean, I want to tell you, it was weird. I've never experienced this before. In 35 years of marriage, I've never, I was cool as a cucumber. I mean, that's just not me. I'm on the phone with my mom and dad on the way here telling them, going, you wouldn't believe this. We actually had a conversation that ended well. I mean, it was difficult, but it ended well. Because I learned a lesson to entrust myself to him who judges justly. I didn't agree with half the stuff she was saying. But that's not the point. I think the point is love the last time I checked. You've got to make a conscious decision not to wallow in your own self-pity. But to trust in him who judges justly. This is a miracle to be experienced. It really is. Let's think of some situations where this might happen very soon in your life. Let's do a simple one. When the good that you've done goes unnoticed. When the good that you've done goes unnoticed. Okay? You're at work. You're putting in extra time. You've already clocked out. You're not even trying to get paid for it. Nobody notices. My mom made thousands of meals for me growing up. I might have said thank you twice. One time when I was especially hungry, 
another time when maybe she just outdid herself with some kind of fancy meal. Thousands of meals, two thank yous. Maybe you felt that way, maybe you've done that. My dad's in his 80s now, my stepmom's in her 70s. It was just a few years ago I started calling them every week. So I usually call them on the way here, from my house to, to Scum. Have about a, you know, and I usually start a little early and a little late. So about a half an hour conversation on the way here. I mean, I'm 59 years old, and just in the last few years I'm doing that? What is wrong with me? Or rather, what is right with my father, who never, ever took it as an offense. And every time I would call, no matter if it was months in between, would be excited to talk to me. Hi, Michael, how you doing? Great to hear your voice. What's going on with the kids? What's going on with Mary? Tell me about your life. The good my dad did went unnoticed for decades. And he still loves me. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I want us to be as a people, as a church. Or when the good you do is rejected. It's a whole other level. Romans 12, 19 through 20 says, Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but give place to anger. For it is written, Vengeance, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Here's what Jesus says, no, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. That's your response. Your response is to trust him who judges justly to put it in his hands, and you're supposed to be nice to your enemies who mistreat you. You're supposed to do things for them. So let's do what Jesus did. Let's follow in his footsteps. When these kind of situations come up in our lives, when we are unjustly treated, let's give them back to God. Now, I do not mean to denigrate anybody's trauma over sexual abuse or physical abuse. I'm not talking about those kinds of things specifically right now. That's almost a whole other category. I'm talking about when you are unjustly treated for doing good the way that Jesus was unjustly treated for doing good. Remember God. Remember God. Follow in Jesus' footsteps. He will reward you. Not one good thing that you do is forgotten. It's all entered in the heavenly data files. It is. I don't know what angel's in charge of that entry, but I wouldn't like that job. Because Christians do a lot of good things and never, ever get anything for them here on earth. But you know what? You will be rewarded for them in heaven. Nothing goes unrewarded. And outside of Jesus, nothing goes unpunished. There will be justice. There will be justice either on the cross or in hell. So, as a result, 
you're free. You're free to go. You're free to live. You're free to love. You don't have to be burdened by the anger. You don't have to be shackled by the resentment of being unjustly treated. I'm asking you to leave behind the self-pity. I'm asking you to lay down the bitterness, to take off the yoke of abuse. God is there in every relationship. Remember Him. Be conscious of Him. Hand it over to Him. Remember Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, bring to mind people who have unjustly treated us, and we are filled with righteous indignation. We hand that over to you. It's yours. We hand it all over to you, Lord. You know how it feels. You handed it all over to your Father. We're handing it all over to you. We're handing over the anger. We're handing over the shame. We're handing over the guilt, the false guilt. We're handing over ourselves to you because we want to be free in your name we pray jesus amen we're going to have some folks back here in the prayer cave during the last set of songs and if there's a situation that you want to pray through maybe peter brought something up in his uh, writings today and you've got to deal with something but you really don't know how to navigate that all by yourself Let me some folks back here. We would love to pray with you and help you bring that to Jesus.